0: Hello and welcome to Micro Philosophy, a podcast featuring diverse discussions with philosophers worth listening to. I'm Julian Bugini. This episode is on existentialism today and it was one of my series of philosophy salons at St George's Bristol. My guests that evening were Kate Kirkpatrick, the author of the biography Becoming Beauvoir, and Jonathan Weber, the author of Rethinking Existentialism. We covered a lot of ground including the nature and degree of human freedom, whether existentialism was capable of grounding a credible ethics, and the revealing differences between Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir's versions of existentialism. But before that, a much more basic question. In your book, Jonathan, you say classical existentialism is the theory that existence precedes essence, and that we ought to treat this structure of a human being as intrinsically valuable and the foundation of other values – I think it's fantastic you managed to get a definition of existentialism into one sentence using only English words. But, but in order to make sense of it, it's that phrase existence precedes essence. Now, without perhaps going into some of the complications of that,
1: what essentially does that mean and, and why is it so important? Yeah, I apologize for using that phrase. It's not my fault. It's entirely Jean-Paul Sartre's fault. That's his definition of existentialism. It's not particularly helpful, partly because it trades on kind of precise meanings of those words as they're used in metaphysics, in kind of Aristotelian and neo-Aristotelian metaphysics in the medieval period. So as you know, if you don't happen to have the same educational background as jean paul sartre you're just not going to get what that means so what he what he really means is this he thinks that uh, what what's interesting about human beings and human individuals is that they don't have a kind of inbuilt personality, inbuilt character that's innate and which is fixed and which uh, explains why they do what they do, right? which motivates them, which uh, motivates the way they see the world, the way they respond to the world, uh, and the kind of goals that they set themselves. Instead, he thinks that what appears to be an individual's character or what is an individual's character is not uh, fixed in that way, but it's dependent on... Uh, what he calls projects uh, which essentially are kind of values evaluative commitments so it's what you uh, value in life and what you value uh, in the world that ultimately shapes the way the world seems to you and what you notice about it how you feel about it how you think about it and as a result shapes your behavior and your goals and everything else about your life that's what he means.
0: Okay, so so I mean, I, it, the way I sometimes see it, Stanley described is: you take any kind of object like this, like a you know a cup. It's been made by someone for a particular purpose, right? So in that case, its essence precedes its existence. Its purpose exists before it's created. Mm-hmm. Animals, they may not be a creator god, but nonetheless, they're kind of genetically programmed essentially so we have this is it is it unique is it only humans who have this capacity to in a sense decide what they they are going to be and what the values of their lives are going to be and to shape them for themselves is it uniquely human
1: so far as we know Yep. I mean, that, that, that's his view, right? It's not, it's not, it's, cause it's not a biological claim about the human animal, right? It's a claim about the kind of lives we lead, the kind of existence we have, the kind of beings that we are. Maybe there are creatures on other planets like that. Maybe one day there will be robots like that. I mean, that, that that's just an open question, right? It's not, it's not defined, like tied to the kind of human genome or, or anything like that.
0: Is it, is it tied to a rejection of belief in God? Because, you say in your book that the way you're defining existentialism is is narrower than it's come to be used. The term has come to be used rather broadly. If you pick up many introductions to existentialism, they'll have a very broad range of thinkers. They'll probably include Kierkegaard, for example, who is a religious thinker, um, who presumably doesn't quite believe the same thing. So it, it's non-belief in God, an important aspect of this.
1: I don't think it is. I mean, in in the lecture where the, where Sartre defined the term existentialism with that phrase "existence precedes essence," a lecture called "Existentialism Is a Humanism," um, which delivered in a, in a nightclub in Paris in 1945, just after the end of the war, uh, he manages to say basically all three possible answers to that question. Right. <laughs> so, on the one hand, he says there are. Uh, existentialists who are Christians, so there is such a thing as Christian existentialism, theistic existentialism. He also manages to say that existentialism is a form of atheism, and that it is just uh, what it is, is taking atheism to its logical conclusion. And he manages to say it doesn't matter in the slightest to an existentialist whether God exists or not. Those are the only possible answers to that question, and he gets all three of them in, in a short lecture. Um I think, the, I think the correct one is the third one. So, Partly what he's up to, again, with that phrase, existence precedes essence, is responding to, when I say kind of Aristotelian metaphysics in the medieval period, that means people like Thomas Aquinas, right? So people who are, who are as much Christian theologians as they are philosophers. And they see kind of human essence as itself, something that's designed in the mind of God. So in rejecting the idea that there is a kind of fixed essence, it follows that their understanding of God and the relationship between God and man uh, isn't true. But of course, there are lots of other ideas of God and other ideas of religion. Mm. Um, so... Really, I think that's right. uh, On my view, as long as you think that existence precedes essence, that human beings don't have fixed natures, and instead it's their own values and undertakings that explain their behaviour, then whatever else you think consistent to that, that's an existentialist view. Okay, Uh, great. Now, of course, uh, as you say, on your
0: account, the twin pioneers of this were Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. Simone de Beauvoir, however... Has historically come very much second place in this. She's tended to have been portrayed in the wrong way for, for years and years. So uh, it's very interesting, when she went to America, the New Yorker described her as Sartre's female counterpart and the prettiest existentialist you ever saw. And Vogue called her the, you know, the disciple of Jean-Paul Sartre's existentialist uh, philosophy. And actually, I mean, I think I, I, there were certain things you mentioned which kind of surprised me, actually sort of shocked me a bit about how much she's been neglected. So, for example, The Second Sex is her masterpiece by a lot of people's judgment. And, like, uh, we have this copy in our house, this Picador classic. So, if you read that, you probably think you've read The Second Sex. But actually, that's not right, is it? Not quite. (laughs) Why is that, then? What's, What's wrong with this?
2: That edition of The Second Sex was a translation by Howard Parshley, which was published in English in 1953, Um, but when Blanche Knopf of the American publisher, Alfred Knopf, uh, commissioned it, she thought that existentialism was a dead duck. And she asked, uh, Howard partially to, to edit it down a little bit because she said it's author suffered from verbal diarrhea and what partially excluded actually amounts to about 15% of the book. He wasn't a philosopher with, uh, knowledge of the terminology of French philosophy in the 1940s. So he didn't consistently translate Beauvoir's philosophical claims, uh, and he excluded pretty significant passages of the book, including her analysis of housework and the role that housework plays in the oppression of women, uh, and including the voices of dozens of women speaking for themselves about how they suffered because they were defined in certain ways by society in ways that restricted their possibilities. So it's something I find quite, I guess, funny is the lightest way to put it. When you talk to French Beauvoirians as opposed to English Beauvoirians is that from the French point of view, uh, it's quite astonishing that many English readers of Beauvoir could reach the conclusions they have in the 20th century, uh, because they weren't reading the same book in significant respects. <laughs> yeah, but what's most so. astonishing
0: about this is, okay, we can kind of understand this was, what, 19, was it translated in the 1950s? Or it was, more? yeah, it came out in 53 Okay, in so it came out in 53, it's it's America, this happened. Yeah. You would have thought that would have been put right before too long. When did we get the first proper full translation in English? 2009. <laughs> 2009, yeah. right. So we're, we're, we're already towards the end of the first decade of the 21st century yes. before we actually get the the proper version of boba yeah. in english right yes so this is really serious um neglect what why what what are the reasons for this why has she been you know second fiddle seems to be even underestimating really i mean the the the, the respect and attention and seniority given to sartre in this partnership is, is so much greater than has been given to her why do you think that is i mean there's got to be more than one reason obviously but what, what perhaps are the main reasons
2: um, I'd be interested in John's answer to this question as well. I mean, I think mine is that it's a combination of factors. I think it's the easy way out to say sexism is to blame because there are other things, including their controversial relationship, uh, the lack of access to her philosophical works outside of France. So The Ethics of Ambiguity, one of her essays from earlier in the 40s was translated into English relatively early, but Paris Incinius, which is, probably a better piece of philosophy in the estimation of many, I know we, I think we share that view, was not translated into English until 2006. So for over 50, well, yeah, over 50 years in English, people were reading the second sex without the theoretical apparatus that belonged to Beauvoir uh, and assuming that she was popularizing Sartre's ideas as opposed to articulating her own.
0: But did she also, I mean, to a certain extent, um, help create this impression? I mean, she did say, for example, you know, I'm not a philosopher, I'm a literary writer. Sartre is the philosopher. So she did actually, in, in a strange way, almost seem to sort of conspire with this. What, what was going on there?
2: <laughs> so this is a, that particular claim is a claim that's perplexed a lot of feminists and philosophers who are keen to defend Beauvoir as a philosopher in her own right, But that claim was made in her autobiographies decades after this came into English, or at least a decade and a half after that claim came into English. And uh, if you read it in the context of Beauvoir's philosophical writings, you can see that the word philosophy there could be actually an insult, uh, because she thinks that there's a certain way of doing philosophy which is so abstract and removed from how life should be lived that it doesn't illuminate the kinds of questions that she was really interested in. And so, uh, in her essay on literature and metaphysics, and another another text from the forties, she makes a distinction between what she calls systems philosophers and subjectivity philosophers. And in the first category, she puts people like Spinoza and Leibniz, who want to have a kind of systematic theory of everything. And in the second category, people like Kierkegaard and, interestingly, Dostoevsky, because they want to they want to reflect on what it's like to live from a first person point of view. And she definitely identifies herself as belonging to the second category,
0: uh, but not the first. That's interesting. I mean, One of the things in your book I I noticed, you said how Beauvoir's diaries shows that she found a certain kind of philosophy alienating on on its requirement to to reason coldly. So uh, perhaps if she's associating philosophy with that cold reason, then she has reasons to distance itself. Kate said she was interested in in your take on this. So are we.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So am I. Um... (laughs) So... Yeah, no, I think that's, that's I, I agree. I think that's exactly right. In fact, I think somewhere in, is it in her, one of her autobiographies she describes a f- philosophy as a style of writing, philosophical writing, as a kind of mania, right, and as a kind of um, kind of totalitarianism, right—an attempt to inflict your way of conceptualizing the world onto other people, uh, and 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 a, a kind of obsessive attempt to make sure it all makes sense in every great detail. Um, she she is very disparaging of this, and at the same time, what she's disparaging of is what's. Largely respected by the academies as kind of mainstream archetypal philosophy. And these, what Sartre is doing in being a nothingness, right? Um, building this kind of, um, conceptual architecture of, of, of mind and world and the relationships between mind and world and all the rest of it and building his own kind of arcane terminology to describe it. So, as well as the fact that she, so she describes herself as not a philosopher, but people have often said, so, taken that to be talking herself down, where she's not. She's talking down philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, because people respect that kind of philosophy, that's what's elevated Sartre, I think, in, in large part. Mm-hmm. I mean, there seems, seems to be a personality element as well. You know, Sartre was
0: more sort of put himself forward, more more sort of confident. And this this may be related to, you know, social norms around how men and women present themselves. I do find there's a very telling little anecdote, actually. To, when they visited London, which was the... Well, you can tell it, actually.
2: <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to... He did, he was more interested in having a theory of the Englishman uh, than going around and seeing things like the British Museum and all the, the cultural... The seeing... London and uh, the different sites it had to offer. He wanted to sit in one place and think about it. Um, And he refused to go into the the Oxford colleges because of the snobbishness of the English undergraduate. Mm. And Beauvoir thought he was just being obstinate for no good reason. (laughs) Um, I
0: I think in in, in many respects I have to say that as characters Beauvoir consistently comes across as a more attractive figure than Sartre, doesn't he? And uh, one of these early things is again another one of these apparently self-deprecating comments when they were quite young. She found that when she was arguing with Sartre, that you know he seemed to have this superior intellect. Maybe it was a point of their stage of development. But there's this lovely sentence which I think I'm going to include in a list of all-time quotes, which she says, "My curiosity was greater than my pride. I preferred learning to showing off." So she wasn't defeat. She wasn't defeated by this. She just thought, "Fine, he's he's up there at the moment, but I'm you know I'm just going to keep working at it uh, because." I, what I'm interested—I in, don't want to be right. I don't want to win the argument. I want to get there, and I think in the long run, as we might see in the long run, perhaps uh, she comes out ahead. Even okay. So look, we've talked a little bit. We mentioned at the beginning about uh, how this idea of the essence precedes existence, and therefore it's down to it's down to us to create our own selves, our own lives, our own meaning, our own projects. So with that comes this idea that we have this uh, quite a fundamental freedom, but when you start to analyse what this freedom is, right, this is another thing where it gets a little bit complicated. If you've read, as a lot of us have, because being in nothingness is huge and technical and difficult, if you've just read existentialism and humanism, which a lot of people do, then I think you would come away with a, an idea that Sartre had a quite a sort of naive idea of freedom. And in the early days, perhaps he did. So what, was, what do you think was the, Jonathan, what was the early, more simplistic notion of
1: freedom that we think Sartre had? At that point in sort of 1945, um, yeah, yeah 1943. I, I think he thought that, well, as I said, that he thinks that projects, the values that you've got are basically all that defines your character and your outlook and the way you think and feel about things and the way you behave. Uh, and he thought that those values themselves are examples of what he called nothingnesses, right? So they don't actually exist. They're not They're not objects. They're not physical objects or lumps of matter or anything like that. They're things that only uh, exist so long as you value them. Right. So as long as you, th- and so, and so he thought you just have the freedom to just change your values. Cause why wouldn't you? I mean, well, what could stop you? They don't have any being of their own. They don't have any reality of their own. And as a result, you have what he called radical freedom, which is the freedom to change even the deepest parts of your own outlook, right? And to change what everything else depends on, which is your own set of values. I mean, he did think even at that time that that didn't mean it was easy partly because he thinks that your values, uh, your, your kind of set of values, become kind of holistic and systematic. So they all depend on each other. So he does say, there's this long argument in uh, Towards the End of Being and Nothingness, that says, yeah, you're you're always free to do otherwise, but there's always going to be a cost, right? And you might not be willing to pay the cost. So if you, if you change a value or you change a project, something like that, it's going to have implications for a lot of what else you do in life and a lot of the rest of how you see life. And it may require abandoning other things that you don't want to abandon or change.
0: Yeah, so he saw it as difficult, but nevertheless, he did seem to sort of think that fundamentally, we could choose to be pretty much, pretty pretty much choose any any value. And, I, in a way, I don't want to talk too much about this sort of biographical stuff about their relationship and everything, because in, in a way that like, gets in the way. You know, it's very interesting in a slightly voyeuristic point of view that they had this open relationship. I mean, perhaps we'll talk a bit about it a bit later. But with, philosophically, it was a very rich philosophical relationship. And again, I think is it, I don't know if it's a consensus that the, in these conversations, eventually Beauvoir around, runs such around to her view. What was her problem with his early ideas of freedom?
2: Well, she thought that he failed to take into account a conceptual distinction and the limitations applying to certain groups of people. So the conceptual distinction is one between freedom and power. And so Descartes distinguished between freedom and power because there's an equal distribution of freedom in one sense in all human beings, but not all human beings have the power to exercise their freedom. And so Beauvoir uses the concept of situation slightly differently than Sartre does to say individual human beings' powers to, to act freely are constrained uh, by their situations, and certain groups of people have constraints on their situation. Now, that's a bit too general because she's very interested in the f- formation of particular human beings, but the objection that she said that she made to Sartre in the 1930s before either of them were published on this subject is what kind of freedom could a woman in a harem achieve? Uh, So it's all well and good to claim that we all have this human freedom, but we do not all have the same power to exercise that freedom. And she thought his early vision of freedom didn't take that sufficiently into account.
0: I could read that in one way, where it's simply the case that in a way we all have an equal capacity of freedom, but the power to put it into practice and act on it is limited. But doesn't it go a bit deeper than that? Because isn't, isn't there an internal aspect to these limitations? And there's this – I don't know whether either or both of you want to talk about this idea of sedimentation, at the risk of bringing in, in another big, heavy concept –
1: Yes, is the short answer. So I do think I do think Sartre does, although he doesn't put a lot of emphasis on it and doesn't, you know, um, talk about it much. He does recognise that, of course, there are physical limitations, social limitations, and so on to any given individual's abilities to actually pursue their projects and to do what they value uh, doing. So one part of Beauvoir's objection there is just say, so, well, what use is all this emphasis on this kind of metaphysical freedom, this 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 fact that you can change your values if it doesn't actually you know, translate into an ability to actually do anything? But another part of it is I think that she thinks that he's just naive about the way in which values work so this idea that they just they don't exist right they in and of themselves so therefore there's no resistance to your to your whims and to your will right you can just change values however you like because they can't resist you just fails to understand the way in which values become sedimented that is to say the longer that you have the same kind of project the same kind of value the, the more you act on it the more you risk for it the more you kind of put in to that value the more you become so this is a part Of what she means by becoming, I think, that becomes your personality. It becomes more deeply influential over your thought and over your feelings the more you act on it, but also it becomes harder to remove and to overcome. So it becomes kind of embedded. And that is something that Sartre overlooks with this radical freedom the idea that you can just get rid of them, she thinks is not true. And she thinks, and this is how the second sex works, I think, is how at least as I read it, is that, that that's how things like gender are formed, right? So gender, you, you know, you become, a famous line, "Your one is not born but becomes a woman. That's what she means by becomes, right? That you, you are encouraged, discouraged from certain projects, discouraged from certain values, encouraged into certain other ones throughout childhood and adolescence. Uh, and through those kind of repetitions of those prescribed goals, or um, at least circumscribed goals, you kind of develop a character and a, and a, and a personality, uh, which is within society's accepted range for somebody of your sex.
0: So, so in that sense, I mean, the the headline terms, it looks like it's all about the individual freedom, but it seems to me Beauvoir was more sensitive much earlier about how these things don't emerge in a vacuum. And I think that's the real thing, because I think that sometimes when people get this image of the existentialist as, you know, the existentialist hero, sort of, you know, choosing their own values, it, it suggests it's like an atomism, which is not there, bow So you say, uh, Kate, in your book, that, her, that in, her biographies have been described as embodying a philosophical ambition to show how oneself is always shaped by others and related to others. we accept, then, that, um, you know, we, we, we can't be, as it were, the complete authors of our own being? So we're constrained both by... Our own histories, because the sedimentation, you know, we say you, people get fixed in their ways. I suppose that's a folk way of expressing the same thing. And also that a lot of those values are created by our upbringing, our society and so forth. Doesn't that end up undercutting the freedom? In what sense can we really be free then if we take all that on board? It seems that we're taking away the freedom.
2: So, I'm a little skeptical of the claim that the second sex is entirely about gender in the way the word is used now, partly because the word, that word doesn't appear in the second sex at all. And, she, and, and she also doesn't, she talks about femininity and she dis, she does, she separates being a female from being feminine because she thinks that a lot of women are pum, punished for not conforming to certain ideals of femininity. But one of the premises of the book is that it's difficult to become a woman because there are so many incompatible myths of femininity. So it's not even that you need to conform to one. Even if you do successfully conform to one, you are likely to be penalized for not conforming to certain others. Can you give an example of that? maybe. Well, so the classic ones, if you take a certain kind of mother who's totally devoted to her children, well, that mother is not the lover who's totally devoted to her man. uh, Because sometimes you have to choose between meeting the needs of your child and meeting the needs of your man, if we put it in those terms. Mm -hmm. Or if we put it in the kind of the classic, you know, Madonna-whore dichotomy, you can't be both. So I think there she, she goes, It's in the first volume of the second sex, she goes through several different myths um, from biology and history and psychoanalysis and historical materialism. And she says these are myths of womanhood as men, men, some men, not all men, have defined them. Uh, and in the second volume, she looked at how women struggle to become themselves under this set of incompatible myths. So I think... I think freedom or authenticity for Beauvoir, I think we probably need to bring in the concept of authenticity for this for this for this answer to work, is recognizing that you exist in a world where there are already values and that you need to take responsibility for your own values, but also ultimately that the point isn't just to become a self in that kind of atomistic way that some people think the early Sartre described, uh, but to become an ethical self, who recognizes that how you act in the world affects other people.
0: That's interesting because correct me if I'm wrong, what that seems to be suggesting is that to, to be authentic, as you're authentically free to yes. try and run those two things together, maybe uh, stupidly, it's not enough to sort of like try and assert your freedom. If you don't do that in full knowledge of the ways in which you have been shaped and formed in your society, you, you're you not fully aware of what's formed you and therefore you what you're not properly, fully free in some way?
2: So, if you're not aware of the, way, the ways in which mm. cultural values shape you. Yeah. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty... Sh- do you think we could ever be completely free on an existentialist <laughs> picture? I'm not sure we can, because you're yeah. constantly shaped by the your interactions with others. I mean, becoming implies that you're constantly in the process of changing. Mm. So, there's an element of needing to keep up with oneself, I guess, and sometimes failing.
0: I mean, it seems to me... I mean, Jonathan, if you bring you in here, because the, the way you put it in your book... Does suggest that suggests that what really existentialism is doing is trying to, as it were, steer between two extremes. You say it's the idea that the human individual is neither to be identified with the radical freedom that Sartre has earlier endorsed, which is often thought to be central to existentialism, nor to be understood as merely the product of social forces has been the prevalent idea in between. So it's, it seems to be steering this middle ground between the idea of, oh, we're completely free, we can do what we want, and oh, no, no, we're, everyone's just the product of social forces. That sounds like the sensible middle ground, but really making it sort of robust and yeah. and, and fresh must be very tricky. Is that one of the central challenges you, you, you existentialists face <laughs> today?
1: Yes. <laughs> um, so, so, but I, I, I mean, I think it is. I think it is coherent, right? So, so, the thought is that the, what the social conditioning in upbringing does is kind of deeply embed a certain kind of set of values, but they're not the only values that you have or that you might have, and you're you're still perfectly capable of thinking about things and thinking critically about things and coming to other conclusions. What's difficult is overcoming the influence of values that have been instilled in you, even if you no longer. Agree with them. So, you perfectly well have the possibility to no longer agree with them and to criticize your upbringing and the evaluative outlook you've, you've got. The difficulty is in overcoming it. So, that, that's where the freedom comes in, the freedom of thought.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that always relates to this idea of if we're going to become the authors of our own being, this doesn't relate to what we've been talking about, but again an idea that they shared but I think that most people would agree both of had it first was that it's really important to understand this distinction that we are creatures, one of the unique things about creatures is that we can see ourselves as it were from within and we can see ourselves as others see us and the interplay with those two things is, is critically important perhaps could you just say a little bit about that idea and, and why why it's important particularly for realising our freedom perhaps
2: yeah. So I think that idea was in the, I mean, it's been articulated in different ways, but it was discussed in the generation of French philosophers before Sartre and Beauvoir. So it's, I think it's kind of, I'm not sure if we need to say one person had it first, although the documents we have do show Beauvoir mentioning this distinction from within and without. I think it's relevant because most human beings have this experience of their lives as First-person c- conscious points of view, uh, but they also experience the gazes of other people who look at them in ways that can be affirming and in ways that can be objectifying and objectionable. And we experience conflict between the way we per- we perceive ourselves and the way others see us. And so this raises questions about who we really are. And this is an old question in French philosophy. I mean, if you there's a lo- lovely letter where. It, Descartes cites Ovid and says it's better to live life unseen because there's this kind of idea that the gaze of other people is always distorting who you really are if you could just be faithful to yourself. And so there's this tension between self-definition as a project of your own consciousness and your own values and the experience of being seen by others in different ways. And I think that's one of the things that the existentialists, well, including on John's definition, Fanon uh, and Sartre and Beauvoir all say very interesting things, although slightly different things.
0: Yeah, I mean, so. actually, maybe we can say something about Fanon here, just to bring a bring third figure in, because Beauvoir brings in the dimension of, of gender, which perhaps in sex and gender, which is missing in Sartre, but Fanon comes from a, well, I don't know, would we call it a post-colonial perspective? How does Fanon fit in to this?
1: And and, and and perhaps the idea of the gaze and how we're viewed from others? Yeah, I mean, so well, how does he fit in? I mean, historically, you know, he's he's younger than them. He's not quite a whole different generation, but he's significantly younger, so His first book is published in 1952, Black Skin, White Masks. But even then, he's still very young. He's like 27, 28, something like that. And he's writing in a context. So he's French speaking. He's from Martinique, but he's living in France, in Lyon. And he's uh, and so he's, he's operating in a culture which is, by this point, absolutely dominated by Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, and a lot of their gang uh, in Paris, Maurice Merleau ponty Albert Camus, and so on. And so he's very much influenced. I mean, in fact, he was studying medicine at the University of Lyon when he wrote the book. Um, he wrote it originally as his dissertation for his medical degree. Uh, and his supervisor said, they're not going to give you a medical degree uh, for something as unusual as this. <laughs> so he went away and wrote something on uh, spinal generation and published published Black Skin White Masks as a book instead. But he'd been attending lectures by Maurice Meliponte. He's the figure that's often missed out of the whole Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir story. He was a university with both of them at the same time. In fact, he was uh, good friends with Beauvoir before Sartre and Beauvoir met. They were quite a trio, really, all the way from then in the late 20s, all the way through until a big fight they had in, in the early 1950s. So uh, so the sedimentation was his, his concept. Sedimentation yeah. is yeah. his concept yeah. originally, but he, but he talks about sedimentation of knowledge, not of values. Yeah. And so Beauvoir's version of sedimentation is slightly different, but it's, but, it, but it's all part of that discussion. And Fanon is very interested in the idea of sedimentation as well, and he's, I think, getting it directly from Merleau-Ponty's lectures at the University of Lyon. Uh, and so he's interested in the idea that that racial identity in, uh, or ethnic identity is in large part a, a question of kind of sedimentation, social conditioning. I mean, he's interested in it. I mean, he's got a very specific uh, picture in mind, which is the French colonial picture right, of of how he was raised in in Martinique, which is an odd. Set up because everybody was considered French, right? And everybody was, taught, was schooled and taught to consider themselves as French and therefore as European, regardless of skin colour. Uh, but they were also taught that Europeans were superior to Africans, mm-hmm. right? But if you were black and Martinican, you weren't to consider yourself African; you were to consider yourself European. So he thinks that what happens is you get sedimented into yourself a kind of a negative image of the African, or of the black man, even though you have black skin yourself. And this doesn't, doesn't cause a problem in Martinique because everyone's considering everyone European, but then he comes to France, to mainland France, and white French people think he's African. Right, so all of a sudden he's got the the gaze that he uh, would would point at other Africans being pointed at him, right? And all of a sudden he has to see himself through the lens of this very negative stereotype that's been deeply instilled in him. So that's the kind of picture that he's he's talking about. But what he's got in common there with Beauvoir is this idea that that stereotypes and images of particular groups of people can be deeply instilled in you throughout your upbringing uh, and can shape the way you see your possibilities and your, your options in life, even if they apply to you and even if in some ways you don't feel they do apply to you and that you struggle against them.
0: Well, our title today is Existentialism Today and I think that we've been talking generally historically about what they said but I'd be mean, nice to sort of turn a bit to why these ideas are so uh, pertinent today. And uh, perhaps we'll start though, by t- talking a bit around issues around what we might call feminism although I believe that's a term that Beauvoir sort of didn't always. It, it took her a long time before she actually explicitly Embrace that term. Well, actually, perhaps before we go further, what 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 is the story of her relationship with the with that label?
2: I mean, the story changes over the the later decades of her life. She did say in a 1949 interview, when The Second Sex came out in France, that uh, that she was feminist. But there's a famous 1972 interview that came out when she endorsed the French women's liberation movement, and by the 1970s, feminism had Diversified considerably, and so she it was a it was a statement of her allegiance to a particular form of French feminism and the political commitments that they were working for at the time. So it's complicated. Is the short answer
0: <laughs> okay? But, then, <laughs> yes. then, but yeah, but I want to go back to something you sort of touched on earlier. But I think I probably diverted you, of course, which is uh, it's become a kind of uh, standard distinction that people make, and they often attribute this to Beauvoir. There is a difference between sex and gender. The sex is biological gender is culturally constructed and they're different, right? And so that famous quote, one isn't born but becomes a woman, is supposed to be a a, a version of that. As you say, she doesn't actually use the word gender in the book, in, in The Second Sex, at all. I think a lot of people now just take that to be almost canonically true, sex, gender, completely different, gender socially constructed, sex biology, end of story. How does Beauvoir perhaps help us to understand things a little bit better?
2: Well, I'm not sure people today agree so much on that. And I'm hesitant to claim that I could speak with authority about what she would say about contemporary debates. But one of the things that she says in the first volume of The Second Sex is that she is concerned with establishing what humanity has made of the human female, and that she thinks uh there isn't a, a physiological destiny that that constrains women so values play a significant point now to the extent to which gender is a, val- a value and what it would mean for gender to be a value or what it would mean for gender to be a social construct is a very vexed question so i think she did think that women, certain physical experiences specific to the female body played a role in the oppression of women Mm. and that women's voices were not sufficiently heard in the discussion of those matters. I think it's fair to say those things. Uh, But what she would say about contemporary Political questions is beyond my arena.
0: <laughs> I mean, John, you're interested in a lot of empirical psychology and social psychology. And um, I think you make interesting connections between what Beauvoir thought and now what people are talking about in terms of these phenomena of implicit bias and stereotype threat, perhaps more the former than the latter. Could you, could you explain what perhaps implicit bias is, at least, and, and, and what you think, again, Beauvoir brings to that
1: debate? Implicit bias is a phrase that's used to describe a particular kind of phenomenon that comes out in psychology experiments. So um, the important distinction you need is the distinction between an implicit measure and an explicit measure, right? So if I want to measure your attitudes towards things, I want to measure your attitude towards women or your attitudes towards people of different ethnicities or something like that, I can take either of two approaches. I I can use an explicit measure, which, as its name suggests, means basically I ask you. And, and there are clever ways of doing it. Or actually, I can watch your kind of careful deliberative behavior. That's a kind of explicit measure as well, because you're thinking about what you're doing. Right. But there's also implicit measures, and implicit measures test things where basically aspects of your behavior indicate attitudes, but those are aspects of your behavior that you, ha- that you aren't explicitly articulating in thought or in words so the classic examples are body language how much do you look at somebody when you talk to them how long do you talk to them for how close do you stand to them how close do you sit to them right how how comfortable are you in their presence Um, and the other ones are high speed decisions so you get people to play computer games where they've got to make decisions really quickly and then you see if they're basically discriminating by gender or race in their high speed decisions implicit bias so-called is when you're when the attitude indicated by the implicit measures that don't match the attitudes indicated by your explicit measures. So you say you're not a racist, but in a but in a game where you're supposed to shoot only the people carrying guns, it turns out you're shooting far more black men than white men, whether they're carrying guns or not. Right? Only at high speed, if we slow down the speed at which the game plays and you've got time to make decisions more carefully, you don't show the bias, but at high speed you do. That's the phenomenon of implicit bias.
0: And do you think is Bovar simply sort of got there before the psychologists and so therefore pat on the back? Or do you think her analysis actually
1: enriches the sort of standard social psychology understanding? So she's got a story about how it happens, right? Which is the which is exactly the story that I've been saying that that particular values, ideas, images, stereotypes, and so on become deeply sedimented, deeply embedded in your cognition. And even when you so when you stop and think about them, you might think they're false, you might know they're false, but nevertheless, the exposure to them gets deeply embedded in your cognition. So she's got a story about how it happens. Whereas the social psychologists are primarily just in, uh, interested in measuring that it happens. They're not necessarily always building models of what's actually going on here. but I also think she does interesting things with it. So um, in, in implicit bias research and all the kind of public policy stuff and, and, uh, and, and so on that's built on the back of it is all primarily about how we treat other people. Right. It's about whether you are unknowingly or unwittingly discriminating against other people in decisions that you're making or in your everyday behavior towards colleagues, towards friends, towards people in the street and so on, which is something that Beauvoir is interested in. But she's also interested in the effect that these things are having on yourself, right? On your, on your understanding of your own possibilities and your own goals in life and your own skills and abilities. Cause she thinks that having a deeply embedded model of, of femininity restricts the ways in which girls and women develop their own lives and that's a kind of interesting use of the idea of implicit bias in a way that i don't think is really there in social psychology
0: i mean it's a bit depressing in some ways isn't it that this book second sex was written in you know the the 1940s and so much of, of what it says still seems hugely relevant today o- open question here are there any, is there anything you think in particular, is you know strikingly plus Sachon still the change or is there, any, or are there any things which actually really have changed since Beauvoir's day, and therefore kind of perhaps date it?
2: Well, the biology chapter is dated considerably, I'd say, and I think so. In terms of the things that, that I think is still most insightful uh, from her analysis. Uh, Despite the fact that it is a very culturally located text, so the literature that she's talking about is French literature that was popular in the the period, well, kind of the first half of the 20th century. So there's a lot about it that seems very culturally specific and also time-specific in French literary tradition. But love is a theme that I think is of recurrent interest to Beauvoir throughout her career. And one of the things she says uh, in The Second Sex is that whereas boys are encouraged to pursue projects for their lives and they're never uh, taught that having projects in their life will make them less lovable or less likely to find people in life to love, girls are encouraged to see love as their supreme vocation And to see that their lives don't have value unless they are valued in a certain kind of loving relationship with other people, usually a romantic relationship or a maternal relationship. And I think that seems to me, if you look at uh, cultural tropes now... Um, We may have more brilliant women, uh, but I mean, I'm I'm a fan of Nordic noir, for example, and you often have these wonderful, brilliant women, but they rarely have personal lives uh, that involve successful, loving relationships. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And I know I I can't generalize from that small sample to uh, broader (laughs) cultural claims, but we get in films and in novels, a lot of tropes are recycled by authors in ways that I think perpetuate this kind of idea that for a woman to have projects in her life outside of a certain kind of relationship of self-giving love uh, is going to make her less lovable.
0: Yeah. I mean, in a way, and perhaps some I our media perhaps fault wrongly is that, you know, the way they theorize this, it, does, it explains the persistence of these things because the sedimentation isn't just within the individual psyche, it's in society, isn't it? And so it's, a, it's really, really hard work goes back to what you're saying originally. It's really hard work to to counter these things and work against them. One of the things that is interesting, this does relate to their personal lives, is you know sexual politics and relationships. So they had this uh, relationship with their lifelong relationship, seems to be uh, not, not sexual after a fairly short period of time, but nevertheless, but it was always meant to be open. They had other partners. They had ideals that love should be reciprocal, open, free, I guess when you look at how those relationships actually played out, they seem to fall short of that uh, in some ways. But is it is it is it just a, a failed experiment, or are there things that we really can, again take take from that? This does I mean, it does relate to their philosophy, doesn't it? It relates to the values they have about both one's own freedom and respecting the freedom of others. And yet it does seem to be rather messy at times, to say the least.
2: Well, well, I think it also relates to Beauvoir's philosophy because it reinforces the idea that a woman will be judged for the way that she loves, disproportionately to the way that men are judged for the way that they love. Uh, So that period in there, the period in which there was some bad behavior uh, was before she wrote her Ethics. Uh, and she renounced some of the philosophy that underpinned the behavior, but that's rarely discussed in the kinds of circles where their relationship is celebrated as a kind of polyamorous triumph. So I think you can, you can, you could see it as an experiment, although that seems unfair to the people who suffered seriously on account of it. But I think they both. Well, Beauvoir certainly, I don't, I can't always, I can't make up my mind about, sorry, Beauvoir was the sort of philosopher who wanted to live what, as she thought. She wanted integrity between life and thought. That, that was something she valued. Uh, sometimes, probably with some doses of bad faith. <laughs> One of the things that I miss, think is missing in the and definition of freedom is this intersubjective question of what it means to love and to want to be loved. Because it seems to me that those are pretty important parts of any human life. And Beauvoir takes them seriously throughout her works. And I don't see him taking it as seriously, or at least not giving me the kind of answers I want.
1: Well, no, I think that's right. I mean, but I think that's partly because, you know, one of the reasons why Sartre is often seen to be a miserable, pessimistic um, swine is because, particularly being a nothingness, what he's interested in primarily is not how to live a good life, is how to live a bad one. Um, it's, how, it's, how, it's how it goes wrong. So he's interested, he describes being a nothingness as, a, as, a, as an analysis of life in bad faith, right? He thinks the whole thing he's interested in is trying to diagnose Why it is that people generally end up uh, behaving in ways that seem to stymie their own goals and their own aims, and which, uh, and why people get along so badly. And he wants to diagnose that rather than describe the alternative. I mean, he does want to describe the alternative. There's a famous footnote in uh, being in nothingness where he just says uh, you know the alternative to all of this is authenticity but you know now's not the time and place to talk about that and promises a second volume at the end which will be all about that and then spends years scribbling in notebooks trying to uh, formulate what he wants to say and basically gives up why does he give up Well, partly, I think, because he changes his view on freedom anyway, so he's no longer looking for an ethics that's built on the theory of freedom that he's uh, got. And partly, I think, because he comes around to the idea that Beauvoir's already... Done a very good job of writing an existentialist ethics. There's not a lot of point in doing it again. Um, well, let's, let's
0: just let's, let's focus a bit on that ethics. We haven't talked about that so far. I mean, as you say, Sartre famously sort of never came up with the ethical part <coughs> of it. And I think a lot of the the criticisms of, of existentialism are that you know it, it's going to lead you to a kind of amorality, or because it just leaves you with no basis of it. There's an interesting you, you quote this Alfred Filie, I don't know, in the 1920s who. Who said that the desire for freedom leads human beings to want not to the good or even a good decision, but rather a decision that is uniquely mine? So this emphasis on you—you you must choose—it's your personal choice. That's all very well, but that actually does it really matter what that choice is? Sartre, as you say, sort of wrestled with it. But how do, how do you how successful do you think he was Beauvoir in sort of creating some kind of Ethical um, ideal from this fundamental basis of, of freedom. Okay.
2: Well, so her, I think we agree probably on the first sentence of this which is that her answer is uh, that freedom is the foundation of all values mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, got so far? okay <laughs> What's difficult is how you get to the answer to how should I live so you've got an answer to what's the source of value um, but what do I do in view of freedom being the source of value? And I'm not sure how convincing her account is on that point. Um, you might have a better defender in John. It, so, she, so she says in Paris and Insinius and the Ethics of Ambiguity that you can't value your own freedom consistently without valuing the freedom of others. But what does it mean to value the freedom of others in my actions? You know, I, I might disagree with others about what kinds of values are best for humanity. So how do I get to a set of values that I can... Endorse for myself without tyrannically prescribing them for other people. I think that's the question that is left hanging for many readers.
0: Today. Are you able to sort of like get, extract the ethics from the existentialism in a convincing way?
1: Um, I think, so I, think there is, I think there is a clear kind of moral philosophy in there, how much it translates into a kind of program for... For kind of an ethical outlook is is a further question so uh, but partly because this is the problem right so I I totally agree with what Kate just said so Beauvoir thinks that you know freedom is the foundation of all values, it's the foundation of everything It's all the values that you experience in the world, everything that seems important to you everything that seems like a reason to do something does so because of your projects and because of the freedom you have over your projects that's the literal sense of the idea that freedom is the foundation of all values but it follows from that she thinks through a Complicated argument in uh, Perissininius that freedom is itself fundamentally valuable. It's the, it's the most uh, valuable thing there is. It's objectively valuable, freedom per se, and that means everyone's freedom, freedom wherever it's found. So, but what's the but what's the implication of that? Well i think she vacillates between two positions one is the idea that that freedom just sets a kind of constraint uh, so so it circumscribes as as it were a kind of zone of values where anything within that zone is acceptable because what's outside that zone is, uh, projects aims and goals which suppress other people's freedom or suppress your own freedom that's unacceptable but as long as you're not doing that everything's acceptable that's one view and it's a kind of minimalist view of morality that it sets constraints on what's acceptable, but it doesn't tell you what to do positively. But she also seems tempted by the thought that that's not enough, that simply not suppressing other people's freedom isn't enough. You've got to positively promote it. And that seems like a a much more demanding kind of morality and a much more demanding kind of, uh, and a much more uh, prescribed set of ethics. And I'm not sure she really resolves that dilemma for herself. I I think partly because she is tempted by this more kind of proactive, more political kind of uh, morality but I don't think she's quite got the argument to motivate it. And that's why... All she can really motivate is the side constraint thought, but I do think I mean. So the second sex, I mean, there's a, there's a lot going on in this book. Um, I do think it should be read in the light of that argument in in Pyrrhus and Sineas. So so you know she's when she's talking about all the constraints and the, and the kind of super, oppression of women, she's not simply you know describing something dispassionately, and she's not simply kind of complaining about it. She thinks it's it's immoral, right? Yeah. And it's immoral precisely because it suppresses human freedom.
0: When Boba published her autobiography over four volumes, I think up in the first year, she got a lot of nice letters. And somebody wrote to her and said, you have descended from a pedestal, you have become more human, and your intellectual and cultural superiority no longer make you so distant. And that sort of capacity to kind of use that kind of life writing as a way of, of breaking uh, making the philosophy so much more my kind of real I was wondering whether Kate whether that's what you thought you were doing writing the book of Beauvoir descending descending from your academic pedestal and therefore making your um, um, intellectual and cultural superiority no longer uh, so distant <laughs>
2: I've never aspired to live on a pillar um, but I did I think her ideas are too important and relevant uh, to just be debated in the pages of scholarly journals yeah. and so it was I think yeah, I was motivated by yeah the, the the possibility of reaching a wider audience, but also. I mean, it's, they, they both wrote biography. You know, yeah, she yeah, wrote yeah. autobiography. He wrote biographies of others. And so I thought it was an interesting kind of project. And, and as you
0: say, I mean, as she said to herself, there's no divorce between philosophy and life. Every living step is a philosophical choice. So in fact, writing about her life and writing about philosophy, in a sense, it'd be bizarre yeah. to do one without the other, perhaps. But yeah, as, as a sort of convener of these salons, I'm, I'm delighted with this evening because, uh, you yeah, know, what we want is, is substance. And I think this has been, Really meaty, you know, if you did lose concentration at any point, you you, you would you would you'd notice because there's there's a lot to really pay attention to. But I don't think the two people on this panel could have been clearer. Thank you very much to Kate Kirkpatrick and Jonathan Weber. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about me and sign up for my free weekly-ish newsletter at julianbergini.com, where you'll also find links to hundreds of my articles, numerous videos and podcasts, and my books. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye.